Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future, the podcast series where we talk about innovations in FSC and sustainable forestry, and how we as an organization might help push the boundaries of what is possible. Today, we are going to talk about something that made me all excited when I first heard about it. It's a nerdy topic, but it's also a really interesting one and one with huge potential. It's called eDNA. You don't know what that is? Don't worry, I hardly didn't either before my interview today. But luckily, we have intelligent and very patient people in FSC like Frank Trolliet, who can help explain it all to us. Frank is the manager for monitoring and evaluation in FSC, and in short, that means that he's helping reinvent how FSC might get better at proving our impact and monitoring our effects on the ground. How does that then connect to eDNA? I will let Frank explain. Hi, Frank. Hi, Loa. eDNA. Can you just give us a crash course? What is eDNA? eDNA stands for environmental DNA. We all know what DNA is, the signature of life. So every living organism contains DNA in cells. And environmental DNA is relatively new technology. It's a biotechnology. It's a tool that allows us to detect the DNA left by living species, animals, plants, bacteria in the environment. Mm -hmm. And how does that work? Right. So maybe one piece of information that we need to understand. One big challenge when it comes to monitoring biodiversity is to find effective methodologies. There are many ways, many methodologies to monitor biodiversity. So monitoring life on Earth, uh, usually species, so animals and plants and things like that. There are very effective methodologies, or let's say not super effective, but well-known and accepted methodologies that have been existed for decades. And environmental DNA is the tool that allows to detect the presence of many species, if not all species in the environment, by detecting their traces, so DNA traces. So every living species from bacteria to elephants, trees, uh, all plants and, and vertebrates and amphibians, fishes, frogs, everything leaves DNA traces in the environment thanks to feathers, thanks to hair, defecation, saliva. So when animals and plants interact with their environment while eating, drinking, moving around, they leave some DNA traces. That tool allows us to capture those DNA fragments in the environment and to attribute species or different taxa of biodiversity to those DNA fragments. So we call it meta-barcoding. So meta because it looks at everything and barcoding because it's about detecting and identifying to some with varying level of accuracy what is living in the environment. So it is extremely cost efficient compared to traditional methods. Okay, maybe we can just back up a bit. What would a typical traditional method of mapping biodiversity be? One really famous methodology is doing transect lines. So the idea is to cut a transect in the forest. So in tropical forests or very dense forests, we need to cut the understory vegetation to go through. 
in some other types of more open forest ecosystems. We don't need to cut it, but we need to walk through a predefined line, so what we call the transect. It can go from uh, one kilometer to several kilometers long, and we walk this transect at a very low pace, and we record everything that we detect along this transect. So on the left and right side, we will look at maybe birds or monkeys and primates, it can also be trees. And we have to repeat those transects several times. We then need to measure the distance of the detected organisms from the line transect to compute some figures and to integrate that into some kind of modeling. So it's a little bit complex. The big challenge there is that we first need technical experts able to identify birds, identify primates or what we are looking at. And we need quite some resources to go in the field, first cut the transect in many places and walk those transects. Usually it's done very early in the morning or late before it's dark, so at dawn and dusk when animals are more active. It can be in the day for plants and it works quite well, but it's time consuming and you definitely need some local expertise. That's mm -hmm. one example. Another example, which is really famous, is called quadrat sampling. So quadrat is a square that we would also define in the environment. It can be a very small quadrat of one square meter, for example, to monitor uh, small flowers in a prairie or insects. It can also be a few hundred meters long, so also a square, but like a few hundred square meters to look at trees. It's more often done for monitoring plant communities. In the same way, you need local technical experts, taxonomists or naturalists to identify what you have in the field when sampling. You need to bring this local expertise in the field directly. For the, the quadrats, the same applies. You need to repeat, so you need different replicates. So if you want to characterize a given forest or a given ecosystem, you need to replicate the same sampling effort in many places, which again, cost quite some time. So let me just get this right. You actually bring a, a group of experts into the field they walk very closely inside a square or on a line and register everything that they see. Exactly. Because you're talking about birds and, and mammals, etc. Aren't they scared away by people walking inside of there? How do you track that? That's also a source of bias. So usually you have to walk really slowly. You have to be fast because, yes, if you scare a bird, it's flying away. So experts are able to use their binoculars quickly and that's another challenge, but it's also potentially a source of bias. Mm -hmm. Plus, I guess you don't have that many experts who are both an expert on birds, on mammals and plants, etc. So it, it sounds like a big group. So before actually going to the field with those experts, you need a lot of preparation. So you need to contact, you need to find some. If there are some, you need to organize the field trip and bring them in the field. It can be quite costly also. Another challenge with those methodologies is that you're quite limited in the number of taxa that you can monitor at once. Of course, if you want to do a kind of meta-study to look at the entire community, so many different species and taxa. Can you just translate, what is taxa? Okay, a taxa is a given group of life. It's quite a generic term. It can be a species, it can be a family. Vertebrates is a taxa. 
Mammals is also another taxa, okay. a predefined level of organization of life. Okay, good. Thank you. I interrupted you. So we have a challenge with selecting the amount of taxa, it sounded like you were saying. Right. So if we want to look at different taxa at once, we would need to have many different experts. One expert to look at birds, one for fishes, one for amphibians or frogs, and another one for reptiles to look at lizards and, and turtles, etc which adds up complexity and cost and everything that you need to do in the field. Okay, so that's the old way of doing things. It's a traditional way of doing things. We can say old, but it's still up to date. Yeah, well, not old is outdated. But, so that's the traditional way of doing things. What is the difference then to eDNA? How does that then work? Okay, we have quite some advantages. I will start with a couple which are the most obvious and maybe the, the best advantages of using eDNA. The first one is that by sampling the environment one time, we can, as I said, we do some meta barcoding. So every given sample of eDNA provides information on many different taxa at once. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to have five to 10 to 20 different experts to look at five to 10 to 20 different taxa. We just have one sample and we get information on everything that lives. Theoretically, then we have some limitations. We have also to decide what we want to look at, but it is possible to look at everything from bacteria to worms, insects, mammals, birds, plants, and mushrooms and everything you can think of. That's one huge advantage. Mm -hmm. How is it collected then? Like, what is the difference? I understand that you're not, you don't have to bring a group of experts to the field, but what do you then do instead? So you sample the environment. How do you do that? Usually you sample water. It is also possible to sample dirt on the ground. You can even sample the air. Those methodologies, those way of sampling are not the most advanced, not the most developed. Water is, because historically, researchers and, and people developing those methodologies have looked at marine biodiversity at first. So eDNA technology developed uh, much more in this, in this field. But also because water allows DNA from animals and plants to dilute. And so basically you can more effectively sample biodiversity using water because you get information from all those individuals, all those species in the environment in one place. Because you're talking about birds and about mammals. How would you know that they're present in a forest from sampling water? Because animals drink, they cross rivers, they go to ponds, you can detect the presence of a species that has drunk some water across a river, even a kilometer upstream. While if mm -hmm. you sample soil from the forest, you will only get DNA information from those species and some those animals and plants living really close by and that exactly went at the sampling point. So the information mm -hmm. is not being diluted is not being spread out in the environment as it is with water. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that if a large animal drinks, it leaves saliva and that's why it leaves DNA traces? Yes, for example. Oh, yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that also sounds like you have to 
sample water at very specific places where it's like not moving so fast or standing still or it can move fast that's not a problem so you will then detect the dna that has been uh, left in this river upstream so below the point of sampling few days to few weeks ago so we cannot detect the presence of animals for example that has crossed the river months ago but because the dna is then being uh, degraded so it depends a bit of what you want to do with your study but sampling mm -hmm. rivers can be a very effective way of understanding what is living in, in your ecosystem including forests also so I understand that you have a tree that's right by the river and therefore a leaf falls into the water. But what about trees and plants that are further away from the river? How does that work? Then it might not work simply. So that's one of the limitations, especially for trees which mm -hmm. are not moving. You just need a leaf or an animal bringing a fruit, a seed or a seed flying away, depending on the species that end up in the river sometime before the sampling and then you would be able to detect it. Mm -hmm. So with the traditional way of sampling or of mapping, you said that we have to do it very many times throughout a forest, we have to go back. But it sounds like you also have to do this sampling, collecting of water many places in the forest to actually get a full picture? So it depends on your objective. So if you want to sample a small piece of forest or a small part of your river, you might need one to two samples. But indeed, if you want to have a really good overview of what's living in your forest, you might have to go in different places, different river basins, and to have a really thorough an exhaustive look at your forest. That's the same for any kind of research project. You really have to define what you want to do and the sampling strategy then is being defined based on that. Maybe another point on the, on the practical aspect, which is really, really interesting and I would say is the number two advantage of using eDNA. So how does it work in practice? Let's keep this example of sampling water because this is what is best known and most developed. In terms of logistics and uh, instruments, you need a kind of driller that is connected to a tube that is itself connected to a filter mm -hmm. developed by companies doing those eDNA analysis. Usually, and this is what we have conducted in Gabon in, a, in an impact evaluation we started recently, a given sampling point is done in 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. and by anyone. So anyone can do the sampling using this driller, just following a half a day training. And it's just about using the driller, putting the tube in the water. Basically, it's about drilling. So it's pumping the water. So the driller acts as a pump. It pumps the water for 30 minutes. The water goes through the filter that will capture the DNA fragments. And the filter, which is not because of my hands, is the one piece of sample that needs to be brought back to laboratory. So we don't need to bring back liters or hundreds of liters of water in the backpack, in the plane, to the laboratory. So it is extremely cost-efficient. Uloa could be the one doing the sampling in Denmark or wherever you are, or certificate holders could do the sampling if they want to monitor their FSC certified forest. So there's a lot of opportunity there. We'll dive into that in a bit. But what are the limitations then? We touched upon one of the limitations of trees that don't normally move and therefore might not leave a trace in the water. What are the limitations are there? For me, the main limitation is about the capacity to put numbers on trees or animal populations. So to have quantitative analysis 
what we can do with eDNA, to date at least, because it's a field that is also seeing some great development, what we can do quite well is to detect the presence of species of taxa. So we can say, yes, species ABC or that kind of taxa is present in my forest. We cannot say how big a population is from a given species. So you can say we have forest elephants in my forest in Gabon, but you cannot say how many elephants are there. There is a middle way that is not perfect and it's a bit context dependent. It really depends on what data we get, but there is a semi-quantitative method that allows us to compare sampling points. So you can compare forests or you can compare the same forest over time, for example, to have relative abundances, to be able to say, in that forest, we have more forest elephants than in the other forests. How would you know that there are more in one than the other? Because the signal is more intense. So if you look again at the results from different sampling points, if DNA fragment for forest elephants, just sticking with my example, is seen more often, or if the signal is more intense, we can make the hypothesis that population is uh, higher so that we have more individuals. Mm -hmm. How can you tell the difference whether it's just one forest elephant that's really fond of going to the same riverside to drink water and therefore leaving many traces, or whether it's different elephants going there? Very good question. There are some more sophisticated methodologies, so analysis in laboratory that allows to correct for that. But I cannot explain that, and I would be really happy to invite experts to explain that for laypersons as we are. Sounds like a follow-up episode. I would look forward to that. I know that you can then tell us more about the potentials here from your perspective, because one of your roles is to look into how can FSC get better at monitoring in and So from your perspective, what are the potentials here? How can it help us get better at monitoring impact? Right. So... The first one is by using traditional impact evaluations, which is about selecting a country or two and sending researchers or consultants to look at the impact of FSE certification. The methodology, so eDNA, is, as I said, cost-effective, easy to implement. It releases quite some burden for organizing, so finding experts, cost associated with that, planning field missions, etc. So we just did a field campaign in Gabon, as I said, where we sent mm -hmm. some uh, local consultants that know FSC certification and, and local certificate holders quite well. So they didn't know anything about the tool before doing the project. They attended a half-day training, as I said, and they went to the field and it went perfectly fine. So that was really efficient for us. I would say the big advantage there is to reduce costs and to be fast. And also, if we don't really know what we want to look at in terms of biodiversity, we can quickly do some meta-analysis, so to look at the entire community in the forest, or at least many taxa, many different species, to explore what could be the effect of FSC, because sometimes it's not that clear. So we can do some pilot to see if maybe plants or vertebrates or fishes or insects are impacted by FSC. So we can do some follow-up studies on specific species. That's the advantage of eDNA when looking for the impact of FSC on specific places with predefined projects to evaluate impact. My second answer is more, I would say, looking long-term and how to 
really improve the FSC system and how we want to demonstrate impact at scale and considering the entire FSC system. So something I am starting to work on is outcome orientation. So how to make FSC standards, forest management standards and requirements outcome oriented. This means being very clear and explicit about the outcomes we want to achieve at the forest level and fostering data collection through the assurance system. So the goal is to foster data collection so that we can more easily demonstrate impact. If we want to do that, we need to streamline, we need to be really consistent across countries and regions about how we define outcomes and how we collect data and run analysis. And here, eDNA has a strong potential because that's one methodology that is not the best, that is not the only one we should probably be using, but it is, as I said, very cost-effective and robust. And we could then use that methodology to monitor biodiversity at scale across all operations, or many of them at least, for specific needs to detect you know, rare and endangered species, to check compliance with different criteria in the PNCs. That's maybe a third advantage of the methodology that I did not speak about. When we want to detect the presence of rare species or threatened species that are very difficult to detect and monitor, eDNA can do a great job. So if we then imagine that maybe in 10 or 15 years that we have all our FM standards outcome-oriented with clear outcomes and clear requirements to collect data, eDNA could be one of the few tools out there to effectively collect data that we can then scale up to speak about biodiversity impacts across the FSC system. I guess it also enables us to monitor impact over time effectively and say, well, an impact in non-certified and certified areas quite effectively as well. So to compare certified and uncertified areas, definitely. That's also what we mm-hmm. we did uh, a few weeks ago in Gabon. So we don't have the results yet, but that was the goal. To monitor over time, yes and no. It depends on the exact objectives. As I said, we have limitations. Looking at trend mm-hmm. over time is usually done if we want to look at the size of a population. How many individuals are there? Is the population increasing or decreasing? And we cannot easily do that. So we can monitor data over time, mostly for the presence of animals, but for the size. Hopefully there are some improvements in the future, but today there are some limitations. Okay. So you keep referring to that pilot test. What was it that you did more specifically? We collected data, so using eDNA, of course, that that was the goal, in two certified, to FSC certified operations, forest management, natural forest in Gabon, and two uncertified operations in Gabon too. We had two objectives. One was to compare those certified and uncertified operations to understand the impacts of FSC, so the added value of FSC certification for biodiversity conservation. And here, more specifically, we looked at the effects of FSC on the maintenance of the river system, because there are strict requirements in Gabon, so in the FSC standards, to protect rivers, you know, when developing infrastructures, when setting up logging areas and logging trees, FSC operations have to 
be very careful in how they deal with the watercourses and the rivers. For example, not to erode hillsides and to make sure that the rivers are not obstructed, not blocked. So we developed hypotheses that we would have less erosions and less, less blocking of rivers that would then in turn impact the biodiversity found in those rivers. So specifically, animals like fishes and some insects also that can speak about the level of quality of the rivers and amphibians. So that was one objective. The second objective was to pilot the tool, basically, because as a biologist, I have heard about that methodology in the past. I was always really interested. But the question is, can we really use it for FSC? What are the potentials? What are the limitations? And so I wanted to test it. So it's, it was this study in Gabon is kind of a pilot to get results in the FSC context. My goal is really to launch a discussion internally and uh, across stakeholders involved to really test it and demonstrate the value so we can hopefully in the long term scale this up. Mm -hmm. do, and do you have results yet from the pilot? No, I got very, <laughs> very initial results in the presentation, but nothing I really had time to go through in details. So I had an overview of what some species that the consultants found in the forest, some very initial uh, results on the comparisons between FSC and uncertified forest. But more analysis ne needs to be done in, in the laboratory. And then more analysis needs to be done also uh, in terms of statistics and comparisons. We will collaborate with a researcher to do that. So we have to be patient and wait a few months to, to have more results. Mm, sounds like I have to invite you back. <laughs> and maybe get the researcher there to answer all of my nerdy questions. Yes, please. <laughs> I would love to. I think this is really interesting. What is then the next step? So you're waiting for the results to come back. What happens then? I would like to scale this up to involve certificate holders that would be interested, that would, of course, have needs to monitor biodiversity and that probably don't have big budgets for that. So we can try the methodology in different contexts, maybe sampling forest soil to go away from water to have a full set. I would like to also test it with certification bodies and to see in more practical terms what are opportunities and limitations in terms of you know sampling cost and time. So can we integrate the sampling methodology in the assurance system. So can we involve actively involve certification bodies to do the sampling or maybe certificate? So there are many questions around that. For mm -hmm. sure, we need to have more data. We need to have more impact data so we can demonstrate impact. Biodiversity is really high in, in the agenda. So that's something we cannot deny. We need to define what needs to be sampled, what do we need to monitor, and how we need to monitor it. I would trust that standard development groups in the FSC system are the best to define at a local scale what needs to be monitored. On the how we need to monitor it, we have a couple of methodologies well known already, like camera trapping. We have also bioacoustics. That's something that could make another podcast also, Noah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we yeah. have eDNA. So I think eDNA has a place for the how we monitor biodiversity. The question, 
of who does that, how often we do that, where do we do that, needs to be answered. I'd love to do one on acoustics as well. I always love these kind of topics. If I then challenge you as a last thing to look three, four years ahead and like have your dream monitoring setup for FSC, what would that look like? I know you probably have it in your head. Is it Will eDNA be the main part or are we coupling in a multitude of different technologies? Are we monitoring every single forest or just a sample? What does it look like? So I don't know about the timeline, what's realistic. Mm. Probably not, but let's think big. So my dream would be to mm -hmm. have a combination of three methodologies, if not more, depending on specific needs, but camera trapping, bioacoustics, eDNA being used across all forest management operations, so FSC certified operations, to monitor biodiversity, to demonstrate the value and the benefits of certifications for biodiversity conservations using commonly agreed indicators. Those could be, for example, bio indicator species, so species that are really sensitive to pollution or disturbance. And if we can demonstrate, prove the presence of those species as a proxy, we would be able to speak. So the level of quality of the conservation status for the, the entire forest, it could be about using keystone species. So for example, elephants, we know that if we have elephants or great apes like chimpanzees or bonobos or gorillas in tropical forests, we have key ecological processes that are maintained, at least to some extent. And inversely, if we do not have those keystone species, the entire forest ecosystem can be threatened. So the idea would be to define key indicators that we use across uh, countries and regions and continents to speak about biodiversity conservation. And we would have very efficient and robust methodologies to collect data and demonstrate the value of FSC. That would be great. That would indeed be great. Thank you, Frank. I, I love these conversations and I would love to invite you back once you have those results. So do keep me updated on when that happens. I will. Thank you. <laughs> That's it. Thank you, Frank, for so patiently spelling out the potential of eDNA to us. There is no doubt that the requirements for FSC to prove our impact and to be able to supply our stakeholders with tangible proof of our effect on the ground will only increase in the coming years. With traditional methods, this call would have been both time-consuming, costly, and potentially even a barrier to certification. How I hope that Frank is right, that this can help us get to scale on impact monitoring faster. It won't be a silver bullet in fixing all of our needs for monitoring in FSC, it will have to be combined with other tools, but it might be a very important part of the puzzle. And on top of that, it's just cool and exciting to learn about all of these new technologies and how they might help us get to scale faster. I, for one, am looking very much forward to that follow-up interview and the results of the pilot. Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive into other innovations in FSC in the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future. <laughs>